I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, as we're making our way through this glorious chapter on the resurrection, we come to verse 20, and I'd like to begin reading there down to verse 28. So let us once again give ear to the reading of God's word, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth and the power that it conveys. For indeed, it testifies to us concerning the work of your Son, Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would grant to us faith and understanding so that we might embrace all of the promises of the gospel as well as live lives of gratitude for all that he has done. And we ask all of this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved Lord, there are some people who have a strange habit, maybe you are one of them, that when they get a new book, they turn to the last page and they read that first before then they go back to the beginning and read it. Now, I don't do that because I wouldn't want to spoil the book for myself. But there's nothing worse than investing so much time in a book only to have the ending just be just not that good. It leaves you a bad feeling in your, in your mind. You think, I've invested all this time all for a waste. Well, perhaps you're one of those people who like to know the end from the beginning. But I think there's something to that. There's actually studies that have shown that those people who read the last page first actually enjoy the book even more than others. And I think there's something that's just part of human nature where we want to know the end. We want to know what our destination is and be assured that everything is going to be okay. Indeed, we want to be told that everything that we will be able to live happily ever after. Indeed, I think that's what God has done for us as his image bearers, as Ecclesiastes tell us that he has put eternity into man's heart. And so we really would like to know what is going to happen at the end. Well, God knows that, and so he, in his infinite wisdom and grace, has told us what is going to happen at the end. If you go to the very end of of your Bible, you can read in the final chapters of the book of Revelation a very clear description 
of the end of the age and the new heavens and new earth, albeit in apocalyptic genre with rich in symbolism, but we get the point. Well, we could also find that very same teaching here in our passage today as the Apostle Paul gives us sort of a mini-apocalypse, a a, a thumbnail sketch of the end of the world and the events surrounding it with regard to our resurrection and the destruction of all of Christ and our enemies. You see, the Apostle Paul has found it necessary to describe this, and even going back to the beginning of our chapter by way of review, he's described in summary the the content of the gospel, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised, that he appeared to the apostles so that they might proclaim the good words of the gospel. But also, as we saw last week in verses 12 through 19, he described the dire consequences, the unacceptable results of denying the resurrection, which some in Corinth were doing. And so here he gives a positive statement, a a, a thumbnail sketch, as I said, of what will happen as a result of the fact that Christ indeed has been raised from the dead. And that's why he begins in verse 20 by making a clear affirmation of historical fact where he says, but in fact, or even, but now, as it is literally in the Greek, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. You see, he negates all that was said beforehand when he had entertained the possibility that if Christ had not been raised, then what would happen? Well, here he says, well, no, Christ has been raised. And so now he's going to, as I said, make a positive affirmation of the results of what comes as a result of the fact that Christ has indeed been raised. And he calls him, in verse 20, the first fruits of the resurrection, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, boys and girls, as we said last week, Paul gets this idea of first fruits from the Old Testament, where God commanded the Israelites during the time of harvest, when there would be a fruit on the trees or grain in the fields, whenever there would be the first initial gleanings of the fruit, as you would go and pick the fruit, the very first fruit that was picked would be offered to God as a, as a sacrifice to him. And the rest of the harvest you would keep for yourself. That was called the first fruits. And you could read about that in Leviticus chapter 23. And it's called the first fruits for a couple reasons. First of all, it's called first fruits because it is first in order. It's the very first fruit, literally is the first fruit that you would pick and then offer to God. But it's also called first fruits because it would serve as a token, a token for the rest of the harvest and a pledge that the Lord indeed would grant the full harvest. And so the Lord says, you give me the first part and I will give you the rest. And in offering the first fruits up to God, the Israelites knew that the Lord would bless them with a full harvest. And so even though those two events, the initial gleaning and the rest of the harvest, were separated by some time, they were in fact one and the same event. It was the same harvest. And so that's why the Apostle Paul could say that if you deny the resurrection at the end of the age, you in fact deny Christ's resurrection. Because in Paul's mind, they are one and the same event. To deny one is to deny 
the other. And that's why he said in verse 13 and 14 that if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And he goes on to explain the relationship that Christ, the first fruits, has with the rest of his people, with, with the rest of the harvest, as it were, by making a comparison between Jesus and another man of singular importance. Indeed, he, contra- he, he compares him with the first man, Adam. Now, it's interesting that he makes a comparison because we would expect a contrast. I think it's easy for us to wrap our minds around the fact that, that it was through Adam that, uh, that through Adam's sin, that he brought death and destruction for all mankind. It's easy for us to understand that. It's what we were taught from a very early age, that in Adam's fall sinned we all. So we would expect Paul to say something like this. Man brings death. God brings life. And that's true. I mean, Paul clearly teaches that elsewhere, like in Ephesians chapter 2. God made us alive even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But that's not the whole truth. The whole truth might be somewhat surprising to us. That whereas man brought death and God brings life, he does it through man. So it's a comparison, not a contrast. In the same way that man messed everything up, so also man will fix it. In the same way that man brought death, man will also bring not just life, but resurrection life. And that's the other thing that we should notice here in this comparison. When Paul gets to the antithesis where he contrasts death, we would expect him just simply to say life. Christ brings us life, but he doesn't just say life. And Jesus doesn't bring us just bare life, but he brings us resurrection life. You see, the term resurrection assumes the presence of death. And it assumes that death is overcome. And so what the first Adam did, the last Adam will not only reverse, but also heighten to a a next level. You see, Jesus doesn't just, he won't just revive our dead bodies. He won't just resuscitate our corpse. As we'll see later in this chapter, he's going to transform us so that what is mortal will become immortal. What is corruptible will become incorruptible. What is sown in dishonor will be raised in glory. And so that's why we see in this contrast uh, or, or in this comparison that Jesus brings us not just life, but resurrection life transformed according to his glorious image. And he goes on in verse 22 to, to flesh out this, uh, this comparison by making another comparison where he gives a name to that first Adam, or, or for that, to that man, Adam, where he clearly shows that the actions of one representative have direct results upon, upon all of those whom they represent. This is the same concept that we see in Romans chapter 5, where both Christ and Adam are federal heads, representatives of all of their people. And their actions have a direct result of the, of, uh, upon their people. Verse 22, Paul says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. 
It's important to note that Paul is not teaching universalism here. He's not saying that every single person who's ever lived will be made alive through Christ, but he qualifies that all in verse 23 by describing them as all who belong to Christ. All those whom Christ represents will be made alive, just in the same way that all whom Adam represented. All of those who came from him through ordinary generation, all of those people, Adam brought death. And so they tell us that there's two things that are certain in this life, death and taxes. But for the believer, we can add one more thing, resurrection. Because we know if it happened to Jesus, it will happen to us because he is our representative. But there's a certain order that God has established uh, in his plan of redemption. There's a very clear order that God, through his infinite wisdom, has set. And Paul goes on to describe that order in verse 23. It's not complicated. It's actually just a two-step order. First Christ, then us. Christ is the first fruits, and so he was the first one to be raised some 2,000 years ago. And then what we look forward to at his coming is our glorification, which is yet future, but for it we eagerly await. As Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 3, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the resurrection that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And so, so far, so good. We have God's order of operations, Christ the firstfruits, and then us at his coming. Then, Paul says, comes the end. You see, after Christ returns and glorifies his people, Paul tells us very clearly that the next thing which happens according to God's timeline is the end of the world as we know it. Now, in the church that I was raised in, I wasn't raised in a Reformed or Presbyterian church. The church that I was raised in had a very elaborate scheme of the end times. And there were all of these charts and graphs that described this very detailed and complicated series of events that that I was taught would happen uh, in and around the time of Christ's coming. But here we have Paul's description of the end of the world. And as I said, it's very simple. Christ the firstfruits, then us at his coming, then the end of the world as we know it. That is, the destruction of the present world and the ushering in of the new heavens and new earth. You've got to appreciate the Apostle Paul's clarity and simplicity here. But then he goes on to describe, to, to further explain what will coincide that has happened during, at the same exact time with the return of Christ as he now focuses upon Christ's actions towards all his and our enemies. So first he describes what Christ will do to us, his people, that is glorify us. But then he turns his attention now to what Christ will do with regard to all of his and our enemies when he says, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. I want you to focus on three words that are in that verse there, verse 24. 
the word then, and then the word when, and then the word after. Here Paul is clearly saying that all of these things are happening at the same time. There's no thousand-year gap between these events. It's happening simultaneously. And so what happens? Well, we read that Christ delivers the kingdom to God, his Father. Now, wait a minute. We might ask, well, does this mean that Christ, after he delivers the kingdom to his God and Father, does that mean that he will no longer reign after his return? Well, clearly not. Neither does it mean that God the Father isn't currently ruling over all things. We've already noticed that the Father does all things through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's the case even now as Christ presently reigns over his kingdom. But we need to distinguish the kingdom of God as it currently is manifesting itself in Christ's present reign and the kingdom of God as it will be finally consummated at the return of Christ and offered up to God the Father in its fullness and completion. You see, Jesus, prior to his ascension into heaven, told his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And Jesus has been using that authority to expand and build upon his kingdom as he's making disciples and gathering people into the kingdom of God. But as of yet, it is incomplete. The kingdom of God is still growing. It's still expanding. There's still people that he is bringing into his kingdom. And only when all of the elect are gathered together and glorified together with Christ can we say that the kingdom is full and complete and thus able to be offered back to God, the Father, that Christ will do. So Christ says, you've given me this people, he's gathering the people, and then he's going to offer the people back to God the Father and say, here, O God and Father, are the people you have given to me, glorified, perfected, being presented as a bride without, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Come to think of it, this is actually the original task that God gave to Adam in the beginning. Offering up a full and fruitful kingdom to God is what Adam was charged with at his creation. Remember what he said in Genesis chapter 1? And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see, Adam was given a kingdom. He was supposed to fill that kingdom. He was supposed to exercise godly dominion over that kingdom and then offer it up back to God the Father as a token of gratitude. But Adam failed to do that task. And so we need the last Adam. So not only will the last Adam offer a full and complete kingdom of saints to his God and his Father, but he also must put down all of his enemies that Paul describes as every rule and every authority and every power. You see here, Paul's describing what he says in Ephesians chapter 1, every rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age which is to come. He's talking here not only about earthly powers, but also about the satanic forces that have, that have uh, come into this world as a result of man's fall. 
And so Paul goes on to describe the reign of Christ over his kingdom as it presently is in verse 25 by alluding to Psalm chapter uh, Psalm 110, the most often quoted psalm in the whole of the New Testament. And in, in alluding to Psalm 110, Paul sheds light upon the nature of Christ's current reign. And he says that Christ's current reign is in the midst of his enemies. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. We know Psalm 110. It starts off with the familiar saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth, sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. That's what Jesus is currently doing right now. He has ascended into heaven. He has sat at the right hand of the Father, and he is ruling in the midst of his enemies until God puts all enemies under his feet, making them his footstool, putting them in subjection to him. And so that's why Paul quotes from Psalm 110 to describe how Christ is presently reigning over uh, all things, putting enemies under his feet. But there's the last enemy that Paul describes in verse 26. He says the last enemy, and perhaps we could even say not only our last, but our worst enemy, the one that reigned from Adam to Moses and from Moses to the present day is death itself. See, we we don't like to think about death in our 21st century American culture. We deny it. We put it off. We uh, we sugarcoat it. You know, you go to a cemetery and what do we make it look like? Well, a beautiful park where we think our deceased uh, loved ones would love to spend, you know, the, the, the rest of eternity overlooking this beautiful view. Well, it's sad. It's, they don't see the view. Death is not natural. It is not beautiful. It is a horrid, ugly, ruthless enemy of mankind. But the good news of the gospel is that it will be destroyed. It will be put under the foot of Christ, and he will finally do away with death itself. To be quite literal, it is actually being destroyed, as Paul says in verse 26. That that verb there in Greek is present tense. And I think Paul can say that death is being destroyed because Christ has already overcome death at at his resurrection. Being the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, he robbed death of its victory. He removed its sting and its power. That's why Paul won't even write that believers die. He says they fall asleep because Christ has taken out the sting of death. He's overcome death. And so even when our bodies are laid to rest, we do it in the confidence that they will be raised Again, And so this overcoming of death, this destruction of death, which even has been set into motion through the resurrection of Christ, death will finally be done away with at the resurrection at Christ's return. Again, all of these things are happening simultaneously. The resurrection of the people of God is the destruction of their last enemy, death itself. And to prove that God will accomplish this victory through a man, as Paul already told us, through a man will come the resurrection of the dead. Paul quotes from another Old Testament psalm 
he quotes from Psalm chapter 8. The Psalm chapter 8, you may recall, is a psalm which praises God for his creation of man as the vice regent over the rest of creation. It says, when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, what is man that, what, uh, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. That's the part of the psalm that Paul quotes here. All sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. There's the psalmist reflects upon the, the majesty, the glory and honor that Adam was crowned with at the, uh, the beginning of creation, having dominion over all the rest of the creatures, over the whole of the created order. David then turns and praises God for his beauty of creation, setting man over it. And yet we know the rest of the story. We know that Adam took that crown and threw it in the dust and submitted himself not to God, but to the serpent. And in result, the result was that the fall reversed the order, the original order of creation, turning it on its head, and frustrated man's efforts to exercise dominion. It also brought in the tyranny of death itself. As we read in Genesis chapter 3, as the Lord is uh, uh, announcing the curse upon uh, the ground as a result of Adam's sin, he says to Adam, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So that original glory that Adam had in creation was cursed as a result of the fall, and death began reigning over him. Toil, frustration, futility was ushered in as a result of sin. But here we are told that the glories which were described in Psalm chapter 8 will be restored through Jesus Christ. And that even death itself will be put under his feet. Everything that we see in creation will be put under Jesus' feet when he comes and returns. But then Paul needs to make a rather obvious point in verse 27. He says it's plain from the passage. He says it's plain that when it says all things are put in subjection under him, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. That is, when it says that God will be the one who puts all things under the feet of Jesus the man, it's obvious that God himself is not part of those all things. And so, therefore, the Son himself, in verse 28, will be in subjection to his God and Father. This echoes what Paul had already said when it says that Christ will deliver the consummated kingdom unto his God and Father. And part of that presenting the kingdom to his God and Father is his subjection unto him. Now, it's important for us to uh, to keep some uh, clear distinctions here with regard to Christ and his subjecting himself unto his Father because there's what is known today, uh, and actually it's nothing new. People have been teaching it 
Uh, it's been a false teaching ever since the beginning of the church, known as the eternal subordination of the Son. That is, the, the, the Son of God, according to his divine nature, is eternally subordinate to the Father. And what, the, what that false teaching introduces is that God the Father is really the real God, and that the Son, and if you want to throw in the Holy Spirit, is kind of a lesser God, since he's always going to be sub- subject to the Father. And it may be important to note that false teachers going all the way back in the early church loved quoting this verse as it says, the son himself will be subject to the father. And so it's it's easy for us to misunderstand this verse as if Paul is saying, well, even the son, and we think, well, God the son is going to be subject to God the father, introducing this idea of this eternal subordination. But remember, Jesus has two natures. He's one person with two natures. And according to his divine nature, God the Son always has and always will be co-equal with the Father in all things. He is God of God, light of light, co-equal with him in majesty and glory. And yet he also has a human nature. And that is what Paul is focusing on in our passage today, as you may recall, back in verse 21, where he says, it's through a man that comes the resurrection of the dead. It's through a man that death will be put down. It is through a man that Christ, according to his human nature, will destroy all his and our enemies. It's his mediatory work as the Son of God incarnate, That is at the forefront here. And as the king and head of the new creation, Christ Jesus, the man, will lead his people in rendering praise and glory to God for all his works and submitting unto him unto his ultimate rule. And so that's the point that it says here when it says even the son, because Christ, even as a man, is the son of God, just as Adam was called the son of God, submits unto his father as he gives him this kingdom. Here, O Father, are the people that you have given to me. And this is all with the end result that God will be all in all. Or perhaps even better translated, everything to everyone. You see, with every enemy destroyed, and with all of the people of God glorified, and Christ, the King and Head of the new creation, presenting the fullness of his kingdom to his God and Father, and everything else taken out of the equation, all you have left is the triune God and his people. So that the triune God, not just the Father, but but God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, will be everything to everyone that is the entirety of the elect. God will be fully present with his people without any enemies, without the fear of death, without the worries of this life, but that God will be fully present there, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit communing together with his people. And that's the end of the story, isn't it? That's what we read, for example, in Revelation chapter 21, where it says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear away from their eyes and death shall be no more. 
Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. What a wonderful end to the story. And that end is guaranteed for us who are in Christ Jesus because he's the first fruits. And if it happened to Jesus, it will happen to us. Amen? Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we do thank you that you were pleased in the fullness of time to be born of woman and born under the law so that you might live a life of suffering and obedience for us so that you would be able to earn heaven for us. And we thank you that you have become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You have brought our flesh into heaven itself as a, to- as a token and a pledge that you one day will bring us there. We pray, Lord, that you would sustain us even now as we uh, as, as we live lives of obedience under your gracious rule and reign in the midst of your enemies. And we do pray that you would hasten the day of your return. We do pray, Maranatha, O Lord. And we ask this in your name. Amen.